Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. This is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for a week. We didn't have a question of the week episode this week. I've just been too busy to get that done this time around. So apologies for that, but we hopefully should have one next week again. Uh, but this is our news roundup episode in which we talk about three or four of the week's big news items in a bit of depth uh, rather than trying to cover everything that's happened this week. As I think I mentioned on last week's episode, I am now doing a separate podcast called the Tech Narratives Podcast in which I do run through uh, each weekday's news items in brief, um, usually roughly sort of 8 to 12 news items per day. So if that sounds interesting to you, go check that out. Tech Narratives Podcast should be, uh, it's in iTunes, it's in Overcast, it's on SoundCloud, it's in lots of other places as well. So go look for it and hopefully you'll find it there and, and find that interesting too. Uh, but we'll do a deeper dive on three or four items today. The first one that we'll cover is uh, news that Jawbone, the fitness and wearables manufacturer, is entering liquidation. Uh, it was reported by The Information and uh, confirmed by some others as well. So we'll talk about that first. Secondly, we're going to talk about three companies that have issued some sort of preliminary comment or guidance on their Q2 results uh, in the smartphone business and, and beyond. So Samsung and LG uh, released preliminary numbers, which will be confirmed in more detail later in the month when they release their final numbers. And then Xiaomi's CEO uh, sent an email to employees about its results in Q2. And so we'll talk about those three all together. Third is a report from Consumer Intelligence Research Partners, which is a firm that does regular surveys, which suggests that Amazon has 85 million Prime subscribers in the U.S., um, we'll talk about that number, we'll talk about some other numbers in there uh, and talk about my reasons for skepticism about that 85 million number. And then lastly, we'll talk about reports from a couple of different sources this week that the iPhones to be released uh, in the fall, at least one of them, the sort of premium one, uh, may not have a touch ID sensor at all. We've talked in the past about where that touch ID sensor might be in the phone, but these reports suggest it might not be there at all and instead these devices might rely on facial recognition. So we'll talk about that last so let's kick things off with Jawbone and uh, the information, as I say, reported based on several document sources and other sources that uh, the company seems to have entered liquidation proceedings, uh, apparently calls to customer service aren't being answered and, and so on. So definitely signs that things are, are shutting down over there. They also reported that the CEO and founder is going to be starting a new company called Jawbone Health Hub, which will be more focused on health devices and software, which is something that the, the main company, Jawbone, uh, was said to be trying to pivot to unsuccessfully in the last few months. Um, some other detail out there from Business Insider suggesting that Jawbone isn't actually going away entirely as a company because it's still engaged in litigation with Fitbit, which at least some people at Jawbone think they might still win and therefore might still deliver a decent chunk of money to them. So they don't want to uh, liquidate the company entirely until that's all finished. So some interesting wrinkles there. But Aaron, what was your take on all of that? Well, I, I mean, like, like you kind of mentioned, this has been... I mean, the writing has been on the wall for a while. I think what's really interesting about this is what it has to say about about the wearables space more generally. Because I don't think, I mean, I don't think Jawbone was making spectacular mistakes in this space. I just think it was a, it's a tough place to build, to build a product to, 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 to the, the, you know, the size of the market is still in question and in flux. It was, they obviously were entered in the really early days of kind of the wearables market. I don't think it's really clear yet what's going to happen, except that the Apple Watch is doing great. Right. <laughs> and and great is all relative. And, you know, it'll be um, 
interesting to see if this is the fate of, say, Fitbit, for example, you know, two years from now. Right. And that's interesting because Fitbit's arguably one of the big reasons why Jawbone struggled because Fitbit started right. to do really well and Jawbone had some missteps, you know, had a device that had to be recalled and so on and uh, just never really seemed to recover from that and become sort of a compelling competitor in that market. And Fitbit really ran away with the sort of dedicated fitness wearables market for at least a period of time. And then, of course, the Apple Watch came along, seems to have put a dent in that overall opportunity by carving out a premium segment of it for people who want something a bit more than just a wearable uh, fitness tracker. Uh, but yeah, Jawbones seemed kind of lost now for several years, and there certainly had been signs throughout last year that things were going badly. They sold off all their inventory. Uh, they couldn't pay their external customer service provider and various other issues. And, and so, um, you know, it always seemed likely this was the end uh, at some point. But, you know, a real fall from Grace for a company that was valued at $3 billion in the past that raised about a billion dollars in funding and, and will now be liquidated and presumably not provide much of that money back to the various investors. Um, yeah, there is that big question about what it means about the overall wearables market. And I, to me, the biggest conclusion is there has to be product market fit. And that sounds like a really obvious thing to say. But you know, the wearables market is carving up into several specific niches. And there's the sort of premium smartwatch market, which Apple totally dominates today. There is a sort of dedicated fitness wearables market, which Fitbit largely dominates today. There is a sort of Chinese and very low cost uh, wearables market, which Xiaomi dominates today. And then there is a sort of more specialized set of wearable devices uh, with GPS for running and, and kind of people who really want to do hardcore tracking. And that's largely dominated by Garmin and other specialists. Those are the four major market segments. And as I say, each of them is, at least three of the four are dominated by uh, one player with others having much smaller market share. And Jawbone wasn't a major player in any of those over the last little while. They really sat in the same part of the market that Fitbit was in, but Fitbit was just much more successful with a, a more compelling range of devices. And so, you know, it's easy to say this says something about the wearables market, and it kind of does in that it's a tight market that's very competitive. Uh, but it also says something about Jawbone and its inability to really find a niche within that market and successfully go after it. Well, what's interesting to me about this, and I think you've described the market and its segments really well, I don't think it's as obvious in three of those four segments why there needs to be one dominant player. And I say that because these are really hardware as features um, kind of things, and there's no, re there's, no, there's no rationale for a winner-takes-all um, market outcome like i mean for a fitness wearable it's not it's not obvious why every why it's best if everybody has a fitbit you know that's not true in other spaces like mm -hmm. in social social networking it makes sense if everybody's using the same platform like facebook you know or twitter whereas in fit in fitness wearables there's such private devices and any network effects that they can get from having lots of users or being outsourced through facebook or other social networks anyway it's not clear why there should be just one, you know, mid-priced fitness wearable that everybody buys. And yet it's kind of been the outcome. I think mm -hmm. the bigger problem and challenge comes from the idea that the smart watch, the higher end, has the promise of being a platform, one that hasn't been fully realized yet because apps have, you know, been problematic mm -hmm. on smart watches. But, but the idea of a, of a wearable being a platform rather than just a feature or a service, um, 
is where I think the more existential threat lies for everybody else in this space. With I, I would I would say the exception of the Garmin category, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of hardcore right. runners. I have a friend who sold his Apple Watch to get a Garmin specifically because the superiority of the features and and really they're competing in a space that I don't think the wearable as a platform is mm-hmm. ever going to really go. Yeah, um, you know, maybe the features don't improve over time in either way, but I think there will always be a need for something like what Garmin does. But on the other side, you know, I guess there's always going to be low end too, but you know, who knows how much cheaper watches are going to get if you look at the evolution of the iPod over time. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's always going to be the the Android smartwatch market, right? So, you know, the Apple watch only works with the iPhone, assuming that doesn't change. That seems a reasonable assumption. Then, you know, if you don't have an iPhone, you're going to want something else. And and Android Wear doesn't really seem to be meeting that need very well for people just yet. So, you know, the various Samsung devices are, are eating most of that market. But that's another place where the Fitbit you know, range could play potentially. Um, but they've had a hard time doing that, according to rumors and reports, right? Like coming up with a good smartwatch. Yeah, their smartwatch project really seems to be struggling in all kinds of ways, about. and it's been delayed yeah. and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that's that's definitely not. And, you know, that, that that's one of the other responses I've seen today from the Jawbone news is, um, you know, I've seen people saying, oh, this means, you know, Fitbit really has to go after smartwatches because clearly the kind of core wearable space isn't working. And my response is kind of the opposite, which is you've got to really know what your value proposition is and nail it. And I think Fitbit really has done that with the dedicated devices. And the Fitbit Blaze, which was their first smartwatch, really hasn't. It's really inferior to pretty much everything else out there in many respects, design especially. And it feels like, you know, they're continuing to struggle to do well in that space. And that's a distraction from the sort of core dedicated wearables that sell at lower price points, but still do the core job very well. And so I I almost take the opposite conclusion from all of this. Yeah. Well, my only concern for Fitbit, if they stay in that space, and I agree there's still room for them now, but it really seems like that's a high burn rate market. I mean, you're going to have people who buy one of these Mm -hmm. from you, who buy a Fitbit device and wear it for six months to a year. And then just kind of move on yeah and and that's been a problem for fitbit at least it appears to be a continuing problem for fitbit like so many people are giving them as gifts right Mm -hmm. rather than buying them for themselves right and uh and so that's that's i think the scariest part for fitbit is Mm -hmm. is you know they're going to burn through the market of people that want that whereas if you get a watch that happens to do fitness but is also a nice looking timepiece that you're happy to wear does notifications and all the other things in a way that you're happy with, you know, that's something you're not only going to keep, but you're also likely to upgrade, you right. know, yeah. two or three years into the yeah. future. No, no, I agree. And that's probably the best counter argument to that. All right. Well, let's move on to the second set of stories we want to talk about. And this is these preliminary results from various companies, uh, each of which competes in the smartphone market. But in at least one case, you know, the biggest news is actually outside of the smartphone business. So Samsung and LG uh, both produced their preliminary results in the last uh, 24 hours in terms of the second quarter, the sort of April to June quarter of the year. And then Xiaomi's CEO, uh, you know, Xiaomi, of course, being a private company, doesn't have to report publicly at all. But their CEO has uh, shared some data about their business. Um, just running through each of these briefly, Samsung's results suggest uh, very significant revenue growth and record profits as well. Um, so, you know, well above any previous level on both revenue and operating profit and therefore operating margins uh, in Q2. LG reporting some growth year on year in both revenue and profits, but falling short of analyst consensus. 
uh, and then Xiaomi uh, reporting 70%, so 70% quarter-on-quarter growth in smartphone shipments. You know, when last year they were roughly flat from Q1 to Q2, um, and a claim of the beginning of a new growth trajectory. So three very interesting sort of sets of results here. Aaron, you, you looked into some of the Samsung stuff earlier. What was your take on those? Well, it's funny because I feel like I haven't been paying attention to Samsung very much lately. And uh, uh, and then so to see those headlines popping up this week, I was kind of taken aback and surprised. It doesn't feel like anything they've done in the smartphone space has been you know, especially dramatic, but I think it speaks to the quality of, of Samsung's ability to just keep bringing out new and better phones that people are willing to upgrade to in the flagship space. In, in Android, I, th- I think they're still, you know, the best out there. And, and the fact that they keep doing it and keep it, you know, chunking away at that is, is impressive, especially if you consider the mess that they were in this time last year, I guess almost this time last year with the, with the Note 7 and all those issues they've had, I mean, they've clearly bounced back from that and mm-hmm. have done well. And I think that's, I think that's speaks highly of their ability to just keep on plugging away and making products that people like. Um, you know, and I haven't looked into this. I wonder if anecdotally, you know, part of this um, projection of record profits has something to do with them winning. It feels like they've been winning more business um, uh, on the manufacturing side. Um, I haven't dug into it to know if that's the case, but just anecdotally, it feels like that's been happening. Um, you know, there was a time period there driven in part by animosity and in part by Apple just being smart that they have gone elsewhere. But it feels like I'm seeing more and more headlines of Samsung winning, you know, a major chunk, if not an entirety of part of Apple's supply chain. Which, yeah, on uh, the chip side. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is a, which is a huge business for Samsung. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I think there was a time period there where everybody kind of expected Apple to be, you know, off with TSMC or somebody else, and it it doesn't appear to be the case anymore. Right. Um, and so, but again, that's just anecdotal. I haven't dug mm-hmm. into numbers, yeah. and there are people I think who have probably a better, a, a much better handle on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and it's it's interesting because these preliminary results are super high level. So they're basically a right. revenue number and a profit number. And so there's nothing about divisional performance. There's no commentary. There's nothing like that. And so everybody kind of reads the tea leaves. But the reality is if you look back over the last several quarters, it is that chip business that's been driving this enormous growth in Samsung's business and in their profits especially. So the, you know the chip business is about a quarter of their revenues, but it's almost two thirds of their profits. Uh, so it's a very highly profitable business. And part of that's prices going up because there's supply constraints in the market. And so Samsung can charge more. Part of it is, as you say, just volume growth, uh, you know, in a lot of the categories that they supply. And, you know, based on the preliminary numbers, it looks like Samsung's chip business is probably bigger than Intel's. So they'd be the number one chip business in the industry, which is pretty remarkable. It's just a single quarter. And yeah. you've always got to be a bit wary of extrapolating from a single quarter but the trajectory has certainly been there this is a very fast growing business for samsung so it's absolutely a big chunk of why they're doing so well and having these record revenues and profits their mobile business pretty stagnant in terms of revenue in terms of shipments in terms of margins it's pretty flat Um, and that's likely to be the case when we see the final numbers for q2 as well so it's really that chip business that's driving the growth Um, one other slightly ridiculous thing that i saw today is Samsung becomes most profitable tech company. And if you look at single quarter results, you look at Apple's guidance, yep, you know, true enough. You know, if you look on operating profits or whatever you want to look at, 
Samsung this quarter is likely to be ahead of Apple. But, you know, that's just the same as saying Apple is the top smartphone vendor in Q4. It's like, well, yeah, because that's a highly cyclical business and Apple spikes in Q4 and Samsung's more consistent through the year. You've got to look at this stuff on an annualized basis. And on that basis, for now, at least Apple's still way ahead on profits. Samsung's still way ahead on smartphone shipments. So you don't want to exaggerate some of this stuff. Well, and it gets conflated with like being the most profitable tech company for a quarter doesn't tie, doesn't speak in particular about the smartphone business where they compete. Yeah. So no, absolutely. I mean, on the on the chip side, Apple and Samsung are partners, not competitors. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's talk briefly about LG. LG, obviously, another Korean company is always tempting to compare the two and. What's remarkable is LG's revenues for the quarter are about the same as Samsung's operating profit for the quarter. So it gives you some <laughs> yeah. sense of the kind of disparity in the scale. You know, LG's about a quarter of the size of Samsung, but far less profitable on a margin perspective. And so, um, you know, it is growing. Um, and again, we don't have the divisional breakout yet, but the trend from the last couple of years on the mobile side has been losses for seven straight quarters. So this would be eight straight if they lost money again this quarter, which seems likely. Uh, shipments went up a bit last in Q1, year on year, for the first time in two years. So there were some signs of a turnaround there. But you know, given the shortfall versus consensus, it does look likely that the mobile business underperformed. But of course, LG has other parts of its business too in appliances and various other things. And I have to wait and see what the final results look like on those. But certainly much less impressive performance, but you know, actually much more representative of both the consumer electronics industry as a whole and the mobile business as a whole where, you know, Apple and Samsung are actually the outliers by a long way and single-digit operating margins are pretty much par for the course. So, you know, LG looks bad compared to Samsung, but it's pretty standard performance for a consumer electronics company. Well, and I think for LG to grow, um, they'll essentially need a new category to compete in, and mm-hmm. it's probably not one that they're going to create. Right. Or they're going to have to figure out a new way to approach all the markets where they've already been competing for years. Mm-hmm. Um, of those two, the new category seems like the more likely place for LG to grow. Um, and I have no idea what that would be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> At this yeah. Point. I mean, there so, are some new categories clearly yeah. in the industry, but uh, it doesn't necessarily seem like a great fit for most of those. Yeah. And, and none of them seem like especially high growth. Mm-hmm. At least no, yeah. nothing, you know, like refrigerators right. or or uh, smartphones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about Xiaomi quickly. Xiaomi has been really struggling over the last 18 months or so, and they used to be quite brash about their sort of projections for the year and then trumpeting, hitting those projections and so on. And they've gone very quiet uh, over the last year, especially as they've largely fallen short of their projections and just basically stopped talking about their numbers. The numbers that I've seen suggest, you know, plateauing and even a falling off of overall smartphone sales. So these Q2 numbers kind of came out of the blue a little bit because they look very, very good compared to anything that we've seen from them recently. Um, it's a bit hard to pass exactly where that growth is coming from. But the, the, the email from the CEO did mention India growth being, I think, over 300% year on year. So clearly India is a big component. And India is really one of the big markets outside of China where Xiaomi's actually done well. They obviously started out doing very well in China. That business has sort of faded over the last few years. But India has been one of the few other markets where they've done very well. Uh, conversely, they've done that largely at the low end of the market because that's basically where the market is in India is at the very low end of the smartphone market, at least in terms of volume. 
And so that's a big question for Xiaomi is, you know, can they be profitable competing at the low end of the market against the likes of Oppo and Vivo that have very much more bare bones approaches to the smartphone market? You know, it's all very well to say, oh, we'll sell you an iPhone like phone uh, for, you know, $100, $200 or the local equivalent. But if you can't do that profitably, it's not a sustainable business. And, you know, this is all happening at a time when Xiaomi is rolling out lots of brick and mortar retail stores. have got over 100 now. Uh, in China, they're building their own chips with a bit of a help from the Chinese government. Um, and so, you know, all that's expensive. And so this growth is going to be expensive and, and may well be coming at their expensive profitability specifically. So that's my main worry about them is, you know, good for them for getting back to growth. That's really tough and, and almost unprecedented in the smartphone market. But hey, it's just a single quarter. So let's not get too carried away. And B, you know, on the profitability side, there's no guarantee that any of this is sustainable either. Yeah, I don't have much to say on Xiaomi other than that I think you're right. It's too early to call this a turnaround. Um, because Especially because with all these fixed cost outlays going out the door right now, um, you know, who knows, like, what, like, the maintenance of these costs, like, having all these stores is going to do to their financials as time goes on. Right. I mean, you're just carrying a huge capital. All this extra fixed capital becomes a burden over time. Yeah. And... And we've seen other companies do this before where they have a lot of real estate or other things out there that uh, becomes something of a weight around their neck. Mm -hmm. So financially speaking, so we'll see what happens. But I agree. I think it's too early to say that that Xiaomi has turned things around. Yeah. And especially when they're, you know, cherry picking metrics and not really sharing, you know, as a private company, not sharing the full set of numbers. So, um, well, let's talk about these last two items. First off, Amazon Prime. Uh, Consumer Intelligence Research Partners, a company that does a lot of Amazon-related surveys, has a set of data out which has been reported in several places, and it suggests that Amazon has 85 million Prime subscribers in the U.S. Um, And the secondary data point in there was that 28% of those are um, using the monthly option that Amazon uh, debuted fairly recently versus the old annual Prime subscription uh, for $99. Um, that 85 million number I'm skeptical about. Um, and the reason is uh, late last year, actually, well, I guess early this year, Amazon reported in its 10K in a new structure that actually allows you to dig quite a long way down into the business and try to pass out how much revenue is coming from Prime. And I spent a lot of time looking at those numbers and concluded that they had about 70 million uh, Prime subscribers globally at that point. And they don't offer it in 100 different countries. So it's really a handful of countries where they're likely to have the most subscribers. But there are countries outside the US where they have subscribers. And so the idea that they could go from roughly 70 million at the end of last year globally to 85 million in the US alone feels like a stretch to me. Um, Another data point from a year ago, a survey that I did uh, suggested that they that they only had about 37, 38% penetration of US households, and that 85 million number would be much higher, somewhere in the 60s. So basically a reversal of the subscriber, non-subscriber balance from a year ago. That that also feels really implausible. So I'm skeptical on that 85 million number. I suspect it may be an artifact of trying to do a survey at an individual level for a service that's really bought at a household level and perhaps um, translating one into the other at slightly the wrong rate. 
in some ways, I think that 28% number is the more interesting one because that's a relatively new option from Amazon. And it would suggest either a lot of switching from the old annual option to the monthly option or that the vast majority of their recent growth in Prime subscribers in the US is coming on that monthly option rather than the annual one. Um, that actually translates to a slightly higher annual run rate because I think it's ten ninety nine a month. So you multiply that by 12, you obviously get a lot more than $99 a year. Um, so that could be a good thing, but it also means people it's much easier to cancel or go month to month, turning it on, turning it off again, and so on, uh, which sort of detracts a little bit from the value proposition of I've, I've paid for this already for the year. I may as well use it as much as I can. Um, anyway, I'll stop there, Aaron. Any thoughts from you on all of this? Well, I, I think the I, I think everything you've said throws a lot of cold water on this 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 number. Um, but I think one of the places to turn is when you is when you look at all the comparisons of Netflix versus Amazon Prime Video because Prime Video is built into a Prime subscription, and yet um, Netflix is absolutely dominating Prime Video right now. And so there are only two possibilities here. One is that this eighty-five million household number is wrong, um, uh, which seems the more likely one. Or the other op the other possibility is that that's a correct number. But Amazon Prime Video itself as a service has so little appeal to people that are essentially getting it for free because of the other services they're signing up for with Prime that they don't even care it's there. And that doesn't seem likely. I don't think you have 85 million households signing up for Prime and then Netflix just beating the pants off of Amazon Prime Video as a platform. And right. so I think it's much more likely that the number is just overinflated. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's interesting, I did the survey that I did last year also asked people which features they use, uh, specifically kind of shipping and video. And it, it found that only about 60% of Prime subscribers do use the video component. You know, very tiny number, something like 5% were using just video and not the shipping benefit. Um, but there was another 55% or so that was using both the shipping and the video benefit. And so, you know, there's 40% of Prime subscribers that just use the shipping or, or other features, nothing to do with video. So, you know, they, they clearly don't have as many video users as they have Prime subscribers. But even then, as you say, um, it, it seems likely that the total number of video subscribers is lower than Netflix is by quite a long way. And especially the way that they account for it financially, it seems likely that they're... they're um, they are taking a very small chunk of the total prime revenue for video um, rather than for the shipping benefit uh, from a financial reporting perspective. Yeah. Um, well, let's cover this one last item. This was reports from two different sources that landed within a few hours of each other uh, earlier this week, uh, from Bloomberg and then from Minchi Kuo at KGI Research, um, quoted by a third-party site, who, which I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was... Um, I can't remember the title, Street Insider or some, some sort of lower tier financial blog. But uh, at any rate, both of these sources suggesting that the uh, next iPhone and perhaps specifically the premium version of the next iPhone to be released in September uh, will not have a Touch ID sensor at all. So the Touch ID sensor is the fingerprint sensor on the front of the phone. There have been various reports about it potentially going to the back of the phone or potentially being incorporated into the touchscreen display on the phone. Um, in order to enable the bezels to shrink on the device and for the screen to cover more in the front of the device and so on. Uh, these stories basically said it's going to go away entirely rather than being in either of those locations to be replaced as a feature by facial recognition, uh, potentially making use of the 3D sensors uh, in the cameras on the phone. And 
This is important for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, Touch ID is a hugely important feature on the phone, not just for unlocking the phone, but also for things like Apple Pay and so on, increasingly for uh, unlocking features in other apps. You know, my banking apps both uh, use the Touch ID sensor, for example. It's it's a universal and very heavily used feature on the phone. So whatever replaces it, assuming something do, it does go away and something has to replace it, has to be at least as good uh, in terms of how quick it is to respond, which at this point is extremely quick on the Touch ID sensor, but also has to be as secure uh, and effective in as many different scenarios. And that's a big challenge with facial recognition because Samsung uh, added facial recognition and iris uh, recognition earlier in the year on the Samsung Galaxy S8 devices and those have both been fooled pretty easily by people who've got access to pictures and so on of the individuals uh, concerned so uh, apples would need to be better than that if people are to trust the replacement for touch ID in quite the same way 3d sensors could certainly help with facial recognition because you, you wouldn't be able to fool it with just a flat picture anymore um, but, you know, this stuff doesn't really work in the dark. Um, and, you know, obviously you wake up in the middle of the night want to unlock your phone. Uh, you don't want to turn the light on so that the facial recognition can work. So there are some real limitations that they'd have to work around. So on balance, I'm a bit skeptical about this. I still, there was nothing in either of the reports that sort of conclusively said, we know that there won't be a Touch ID center. It just seemed to say, putting it under the display seems to be really hard. They are going to do facial recognition, therefore it's going away. And it seemed to beg the question about, it not being on the back of the phone, which had been what was reported in some earlier uh, renders and various other things. So, Aaron, I don't know if you agree with that or disagree with that. No, I pretty much agree. I, I mean, the, the I just take a lot of comfort in knowing that Apple Pay is out there because it is the reason that Apple isn't going to monkey around with Touch ID or ditch it right. um, without a superior replacement. Um, it would be crazy for Apple to do that because... Touch ID is highly secure. I mean, it takes quite a bit of ingenuity to fool it, and certainly not the sort of thing you can easily do in a store to register. Right. And as long as that's the case, you can expect Apple to maintain, as long as they maintain Apple Pay, and that's not going anywhere anytime soon. If anything, it's growing rapidly. If they're going to use any sort of biometric security as a replacement for Touch ID, it's going to work as well or better. Right. I say as well because, sure, there might be form factor changes in the iPhone where they're willing to get rid of Touch ID for a suitable replacement, but they're not going to get rid of it for a worse replacement. Right. Now, whether or not it goes on the back of the phone, I don't know. I mean, they did they did get rid of a they did get rid of a of a headphone jack last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so. So, you know, but it, it, the sensor will still be as fast and, and uh, but I, I don't know, I, I don't see either of those, I, like, I don't see the back sensor being a thing, the Touch ID sensor being a thing either. I, I suspect it's going to be on the front under the screen based on, I think, what are now pretty reliable mock-ups of what the phone is going to look like. Right. Um, or this 3D sensor thing is going to be a pretty impressive technological leap and maybe it works in the dark. I mean, you know, maybe yeah. it uses infrared to do mm-hmm. its 3D sensing and, and uh, you know, if so, it's going to be a huge leap and it's going to be, it's going to catch people off guard the same way that Touch ID did. And, and I, I, I say other, uh, when I say people, I mean competitors right. because the fundamental concept of face scanning as biometric security has been around for a long time, just like fingerprint sensing has been. But it, taking it to a level of speed and convenience that it doesn't frustrate consumers, but it actually, you know, is something that they're that they're happy to use and engage with, that uh, 
that's where the hard part is. And Apple's done it before. And mm-hmm. I could picture them doing it again with, uh, with facial recognition. Um, but I take a lot of comfort just knowing they're not going to they're not going to ditch Touch ID without an at least as good replacement for it because there are too many things that, that count on it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Okay, well, let's wrap up the episode there. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, as I said, no question of the week episode this week, but we hopefully will have one of those and another news roundup for you next week. And again, I'll give you a quick plug for the Tech Narratives podcast, which uh, comes out every weekday, uh, sort of about 4 p.m. Pacific time, uh, so sort of good timing for your evening commute if you're on the West Coast, perhaps better timing for listening to the morning after if you're on the East Coast. Um, but uh, check that out if you find this News Roundup episode interesting because it's sort of more of the same but on a daily sort of briefer basis, uh, more of a daily briefing on the day's news. So thanks very much for listening as always. Uh, welcome your feedback on this podcast and the other things that we do. Um, and uh, we will be with you again next week. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.